Welcome to Disruption Now. As always, if you're watching us on YouTube, please hit the like button. Please subscribe. If you're listening to us via podcast online, if you're listening to us in iTunes, if you're listening to us in Google Play, however you may be listening to us, please subscribe. Please write a review. That's how more people can learn about Disruption Now. And that's how we can spread the message. We can make sure that we are doing all we can to inspire collective action, consciousness, and challenging stereotypes. That's what we want to do on Disruption Now. But we can only do that if more people learn about us. So we hope you will do that. You can also sign up for email, disruptionnow at gmail.com, or you can just go to our website, disruptionnow.com. We would love for you to learn more about us, learn about the live events we have coming up, where you can find us, where you can learn about what's happening next with uh, Disruption Now. But for now, we are honored to have the president of the Urban League, Mark Morial. You know, Mark Morial is a trailblazer, but he comes from trailblazing. His father was the first African-American mayor of New Orleans. His father was also the first African-American uh, to graduate from LSU Law School. And his father really set the way for him, showed him the example of what was possible. And his father pushed him hard. And I'm sure his father would be proud. He, he's been mayor as well uh, of New Orleans. Uh, he is now the president of the Urban League and doing some phenomenal things. He's started the uh, Young Professional Chapter of the Urban League. In particular, he's actually looked at what is the state of America in terms of black America and what can be done and really phrase that and frame that, I should say, as an issue of an American issue. Uh, he really focuses in, in the 2019 report on the attack on voting rights and really says that this is the most sustained uh, specific attack we've seen on voting rights since the Civil Rights Act was passed, since the Voting Rights Act was passed. And he compared the Shelby v. Holder case, which is the case that essentially gutted the most important uh, section of the, Civil, uh, of the Voting Rights Act, Section 5. He compared that decision to Plessy v. Ferguson, as well as the Dred Scott case, both cases which essentially said that African Americans are not equal citizens. Dred Scott essentially upheld slavery, and Plessy v. Ferguson um, implemented the separate but equal, which brought us Jim Crow, which brought domestic terrorism, from my point of view, for the next 70 years in America. So that, those are really strong words when he talked about the uh, arc of where the Shelby v. Holder case is, but he really mentioned the fact that th the United States of America is under attack. And particularly, it's under attack by a foreign influence. We've talked about it before on a prior show I've had, Divided We Fall. Russia made sure to attack us when it came, when it came to race. So if we don't figure out how to work better together, if we don't figure out a way to make sure that we're all in this, then it really threatens the very democracy we have. That's what the Urban League is about. That's why he is so passionate. That's why he's so involved. And that's why we're honored to have him. Mark Morial, president of the Urban League. Hey, Mark Morial's here. Hey, how you doing? Greetings. So let, let's kind of get started. Uh, I, I know your I know your time is is uh, precious here, and so and we really appreciate it. You know, looking at looking at your history, particularly looking at your father um, and the path he kind of set, and he was a trailblazer, and you've been a trailblazer in your own right. But it seems like your father had a lot of influence. So you and I have something in common there. You know, my father was a is a trailblazer, I should say. He's, he's still, thankfully, with us, and he's doing very well. He's in the labor movement, but he's a trailblazer in terms of African-Americans in the labor movement. There's not many African-Americans in, in the building trades movement, and he's a regional manager and vice president with the Labor's International Union. You know, your father, you, you know, uh, was, was, I believe, the first, uh, first uh, African-American mayor of, 
of New Orleans? Of New Orleans, yeah. My father was not only the first African-American man in New Orleans, he was the first African-American to finish LSU Law School. He was also the first African-American to be elected to the state legislature and the first African-American appellate court judge in Louisiana history prior to being mayor. So he was uh, on the tip of the spear uh, the entire time I was growing up. And before that, he was an NAACP uh, and an NAACP legal defense fund leader. Uh, yeah, really, uh, yeah, we were in the middle of uh, action uh, when I was growing up. Yeah, I, I hear you. I hear you. And, uh, you know, my, my family kind of has that that legacy as well. So my cousin, Vivian Malone, which I'm sure you know who that is. Oh, yeah, man. And so I understand having that legacy. But, you know, I, I didn't know I, I would be here uh, and I'm obviously following following the legacy you're a lot. Carrying, you're carrying the legacy on. Yeah, and I didn't. But, you know, I think when you're growing up, you didn't know. I, at least I didn't know I was going to be there. So my question to you is, what did you want to be when you grew up? And what do you want to be now? I wanted so, you know, early, 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 uh, I interestingly, I'm talking about when I was a little boy, I wanted to be a priest. From the time I was probably about six, seven, eight, nine, ten, 10, uh, somewhere in that range. And then this thing called puberty happened. Uh, <laughs> that thing became like, this is not, not going to ever work, right? <laughs> uh, and I think I got hooked on wanting to do law and I wanted to be an entrepreneur and then I wanted to be, uh, you know, in politics and public affairs uh, very early because my father was a lawyer and obviously a, a judge. My, my grandfather was a business person, owned his own business, owned a small a black life insurance company in those days. Uh, so, you know, my, my, uh, uh, my early life, it was it was law, it was business, it was entrepreneurship, uh, you know, it was politics, but it was clearly doing something to, to to make a difference. Because what I saw in the community I grew up in, uh, I saw the people who I looked up to. You know, they were civil rights lawyers. My father, my father, and his friends, you know, his allies. They were civil rights lawyers, and they were difference makers and dynamic dashing men of the community that's that's what i saw those were my role my role models when i was a young you know uh, a young person and, and and a teenager uh and uh and i had a great experience in when i was a teenager i remember that the uh the watergate hearings were on and they were on live television and i was watching the house judiciary committee and i saw barbara jordan and John Conyers, who at the time were both in their thirties, a young, dynamic uh, lawyers participating in the Watergate committee. And I remember thinking to myself, that's what I want to do. I want to do what they're doing. Uh, they're lawyers, but they're using their law degree uh, in public service. And so they were role models of mine. You know, you saw them on television. Uh, Barbara Jordan was compelling, you know, John Conyers was a, was a smart, uh, you know, well-spoken, precise, passionate lawyer. Uh, and they were young and they were African-Americans and, you know, we looked up to them. Yeah. So, um, I'm, I'm curious to see like, what's the most important piece of advice you received from your, from your father that you can remember or the most important example? You know, I think it was very... It was, very, you know, my father always had tidbits of wisdom, uh, but but it was, I think the real thing was a push 
to be the best that I could be a push. You know, the, the world I grew up in was very focused. They were focused on edu you know, education. You were going to go to school. You were going to go to school every day. There was no such thing as missing school. There was no such thing as not doing your homework. There was no such thing as bringing home shoddy grades. Oh, no. That was not going to happen. It was not going to be tolerated. And then, you know, we were very much a church-going family, you know, when I was growing up. You know, it was pretty pretty traditional. We went to church. We went together. We went every Sunday. Uh, and that was really an important part of, of, of you know, growing up. You know, it's, it's sort of like, you know, education and faith. Uh, and, and I think the third thing that impacted us and my, I think I've learned a lot by my parent, from my parents about what they did in as much as what they told us is that because they were community oriented, you know, I went to rallies and marches and voter registration drives when I was five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years old. My father ran for office. You know, we would go to the campaign office. It was something you were the whole family was involved in, you know, in those in those days and in those times. And so seeing the activism. Uh, the third became the third pillar. The civic activism became, so it was about service. So it was about education. It was about faith and it was about service. Uh, and, and that's, those were the, you know, sort of centerpieces of, of, of my family's life when I was a young man, young boy growing up. I'm talking about, you know, until I got to be 14, 15, became a teenager and became more independent. Yes. I, I want to get to, I'm going to let J James has, has a question and then, and then I'm going to go to Amisha. James. Hey, yeah, Mark, I, I, I had a follow-up for you. One thing you noted, or I, I, I noted that you said was that the high expectations from your parents uh, and how that really instilled a work ethic in you. Um, and, and society at large, you know, that's something that, you know, the low expectations we see amongst Black youth oftentimes, uh, you know, comes a self-fulfilling prophecies. You know, how do we, or, or what do you see as the opportunity to, to imbue more or, or to, to, to raise the level of expectation, um, you know, in, in society generally, you know, amongst African-American youth, uh, so that we can bring up, bring each other yeah. up. So institutionally, you know, I think that the, the, uh, low expectations may not extend to how parents, what parents want for their children, right? I think that many parents, even if they're not, uh, uh, you know, vocal about it in the media, have high expectations for their kids. I think that the lowering of expectations is definitely what I call an institutional problem, right? Whether schools and education, uh, whether, 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 uh, society at large believes in, you know, poor kids, uh, kids from the cities, kids from, uh, of, of, of backgrounds of color is really the issue. I think what we have to do, and this is where teachers, not only teachers come in, but community leaders and parents come in, we have to instill in our children, and it's a tough lift for children sometimes, that not to care what anybody thinks and to have a desire 
to be the best that they can be. But we also have to acknowledge the institutional barriers. And what adults have to do is not only say to kids, look, be the best you can be, you can make it. We have to acknowledge that sometimes these kids might have a 10 foot hurdle to jump where other kids may have an eight foot hurdle to jump, right? And so what our job is, is not only to push kids to believe in themselves, it's also to say that if we truly believe in our kids and we want to, we want to heighten expectations, we also have to lower barriers or equalize barriers, I would say. Right. Amisha? Absolutely. Um, There's a lot of points of agreement here, President Moriel. Um, I wanted to get to something that I feel is very important, um, especially in today's time where we see a lot of um, consternation from several of our longer standing um, civil rights era organizations. Why do you think in 2020 and beyond, the Urban League is so important? And what needs do you feel like the league is meeting for our community? I've often believed that if the Urban League didn't exist, someone would try to invent it. Someone would be trying to invent an organization that is, number one, a national organization, but two, has local units or local affiliates around the country, and three, does something that the Urban League does that no other civil rights organization does, and that is combines, right, combines direct services with advocacy and thought leadership. The other reason why I think the Urban League is distinguishable and unique is because of the growth of the young professionals, because we've created our own pipeline, because we've pressed ahead, and while others were were, were wringing their hands about how to get young people involved, we created if you will, a branch for young, adult, young adults to be a part. And I think that you, people will see on the 20th anniversary of the young professionals how central the young professionals have been. When I got to the league, we might have had a couple of thousand. Now we have 10,000 young professionals. This group has grown. It has made an influence. Uh, it's produced uh, uh, members of our boards. It's produced CEOs but it's also produced a stronger sense of relevancy. You know, I said, when I joined the National Urban League, I said to the executive leaders that if you do not evolve to the next generation, you will die. You will die. And that is why the young professionals are distinguished. And I believe that's why. Now, to say we're relevant doesn't mean there isn't space or a need for other movements and other organizations. I don't think that this is about a legacy historic organization like the National Urban League saying we have to speak for everyone. We can be the only quote unquote kid on the block. We can be the only civil rights voice. I don't subscribe to that either. Right. I believe there's always space for people who want to organize, for people who want to give back to community, for for people who want to provide thought leadership, uh, for people who want to provide services. So, you know, it's about having an enlightened point of view where we're proud of who we are. We feel confident about our direction, but we're not trying to be 
the only kid on the block. Absolutely. And I'll definitely say, um, you know, moving away from the questions for a little bit, um, that as, as a young professional, um, I see and have found within the Urban League a place that not only um, helps to motivate, but also advance the skill sets you have and push you to not only further your understanding of ways you can get involved in the community, but also helps you to understand the specifics to where everything is going and how to better organize. I think that in a lot of the youth movements, there sometimes have happens to be, um, in many cases, a lack of like follow through or understanding of how policy actually helps to move these things forward. And I think that as someone who is who is a millennial, who has been in several organizations before, um, the Urban League stands out just because of the one, the amount of mentorship and understanding that it's given, but also the opportunity to take a real leadership feel like you have a stake in your community. So um, to that, I say thank you and um, and the leadership and the rest of the leadership of the Urban League as well for providing that opportunity. I appreciate you saying that. And then I'll make a comment. I mean, during the uh, those very challenging years when we had the police killings of unarmed black men, high profile, uh, I had a young person tell me that they had become frustrated because quote unquote, they had went to five rallies. They'd been very active on Twitter over a six to eight month period and nothing had changed. And I said, let's come over here because we need to sit down and we need to understand. It's going to change what Twitter or tweet will do it. Yeah. Change, change is not going to come through Twitter, Twitter storm alone. It's not going to protest and Twitter are about raising awareness and bringing pressure and holding people accountable. Well, there's got to be follow through. There's got to be pressure. There's got to be a push. What are the public policy measures that are going to change this issue? And the Urban League, uniquely, we had a 10-point justice plan. We've been in the trench involved in criminal justice reform. These changes take a lot of work that is not glamorous, that is not sexy, uh, that is not designed to always get you on the front page of the news. But nonetheless, it's where change really comes. No, I actually think that's a great point, um, President Morial. I want to talk to the heart about what you have been doing with the Urban League, in particular with voting rights. You, you've had some very specific and pointed statements that I really want to get into. Um, you know, you, you've made a point that voting rights have been under attack like uh, like uh, really unprecedented since the Voting Rights Act has passed. I want to actually focus on what you said dealing with the Shelby v. Holder case. You made a very specific, uh, what I think was a you know pretty controversial statement. I think it's accurate, but I think people need to understand the power of what you said. You know, you said that that decision by the Supreme Court will be over, I'm paraphrasing you, but over the course of time, will be compared to Plessy v. Ferguson and Dred Scott, which, you know, two cases that, you know, Plessy v. Ferguson, we're talking about the, the case that made it okay for segregation to continue forward, then Jim Crow and all the terror that happened with Jim Crow, and then Dred Scott, the case that said, uh, you know, black people are not citizens, so you have no rights, so you're, despite you suing for your freedom, uh, you are always property. Those are that's 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 the really impactful statement that you said that you would equate the the case that gutted the Voting Rights Act to those. Tell me why you feel that way, and why you think it's so important. Yeah, thank you for the question. So if you look at Shelby and read Shelby, what Shelby basically says is there is no more racism in America. Therefore, there <laughs> is no need. 
essentially, we've come so far. Look at the last election. You almost had equal turnout. So here you're going to look at one election over a 50-year period of dozens of federal elections and literally thousands of state and local elections, and you're going to make a conclusory statement that, quote, there's no need for a preclearance provision called Section 5 because the country has changed so dramatically. Nothing in the record of the court suggested that that was the case. So what you had is a Supreme Court legislating, imposing its own view of public policy to reach a conclusion that struck down the Voting Rights Act. What the Voting Rights, what Plessy dread caused the Civil War. The Dred Scott was a contributing factor to the Civil War. Plessy opened the floodgates for 60 years of an American apartheid system called separate but equal or segregation. What this decision has done is open the gates for some 40 plus states, uh, many of them in the South, to restrict, limit, uh, and suppress the ability of people, particularly people who are African-American, to vote. What is my best evidence? The best evidence is that there have been three United States District Court findings of intentional discrimination in North Carolina and in Texas. Two states covered by the Voting Rights Act, which if Section 5 had been intact, these laws that ended up being called by the court intentionally racist would have never seen the light of day. So Shelby is a decision that is in the same, if you will, pew as Dredd and Plessy because of what it has enabled and because what it has allowed. It has allowed a mass movement towards voter suppression with law after law being introduced all across the nation to make it more difficult for people to vote. Uh, and then we added to the report, and I don't think Shelby uh, enabled this, but the suppression movement enabled by Shelby is a first cousin of this, and that is the efforts by the Russians to suppress the African-American vote in the 2016 election, which is stunning. Now, the opinion that the Russians sought to suppress the African-American vote is not the Urban League's opinion. If the Urban League agrees with the opinion of an organization called the German Marshall Fund, which has no dog in the hunt, no politi particular political agenda except the protection of Western democracies. So I'm encouraging people who might say, Moria, what are you saying? I'm saying, read the State of Black America report. Read the report and then make a decision, make a conclusion in terms of what you think and what you might believe. Right. So, you know, a couple follow-ups because you made a lot of great points there. Uh, when you think about the reaction of uh, the cases of Plessy B. Ferguson as well as Dred Scott, I saw those as moments in history where there were advancements that were starting to be made and then there was a pushback. 
you know, particularly Plessy v. Ferguson, when you look at reconstruction, that that is, uh, as you know, uh, the greatest advancement in terms of the shortest period of time black Americans have ever experienced. And in some ways, that was a reaction to that. And and I guess I never thought about it till you said that. It seems like this is a continuum of that in a way that electing Barack Obama as president and seeing that record level of turnout, they were, I, it seems like, intentionally enabling uh, those uh, powers to be able to discriminate. So that's a really great point. But the other point I wanted to get to was that you actually made about Russia. We had a show called Divided We Fall on this podcast that focused on the Mueller report. And, and I'm glad you brought it up in the state of black America because people are not talking about this really in the way that they should. At least mainstream media is not. Uh, Russia particularly focused on racial divisions. And as you said, not only going after African-Americans and, and suppressing turnout, but going after white nationalists to get uh, to build racial resentment, going as far as posting African-Americans, uh, you know, doing martial arts in order to scare white Americans. That's literally was their strategy. So, yeah, not just white nationalists, but but why just white Americans in general, you know, race. Was- it was man. Russia was diabolical sophisticated and clever. They did in the United States what they've been doing for years in Europe and around the country. And I think Americans need to understand that they mean American democracy no good. James, I know you have more on that. Well, yeah, uh, President Morial, I, I, I definitely, um, I, I like, I, I've seen that um, you've been quoted as saying the, the trio of attack, you know, with the Supreme Court, the state legislature, uh, and, and Russia. And, and the role Russia plays actually does need to be highlighted, highlighted because they're a foreign power. You know, it's, we're fighting domestically against oppression and racism and so forth. But now it seems our, an enemy, an adversarial nation has identified this as, the optimal way to attack our nation and to attack our democracy. Um, looking at that, and that, that's been, you, I know you, you, you quoted uh, one source, but that was, I believe, uh, in Mueller, uh, the Mueller report and in U.S. intelligence. But when you see that, is that something that we push back on a local level, or is that something that requires a national response community organized-wise, or is that something that requires a government response? Honestly, because of the magnitude of it, it requires a government response. We need the president, the secretary of state to communicate to the Russians, hands off American democracy. We need the intelligence agencies and law enforcement to take whatever measures are necessary to counteract it, to restrict it, to limit it. They need to shut down these IP addresses. They need to shut down the traffic Uh, They need to take extreme measures because Russia, the Senate Intelligence Committee found, also engage in these sorts of tactics with the Brexit vote and with the French presidential election. So they're extremely active. And and I saw Jim Shuto on TV this morning, who uh, wrote a book on Russia and China. The Chinese are likely to get into this game. And who's to say that next week it won't be the Iranians, the Saudi Arabians, or whatever country has the wherewithal and the money to conduct these sorts of efforts to manipulate and express opinions on American elections, American public policy, uh, the state of race in America. 
really, really clear uh, uh, that people, we thought it was important to create some transparency around this so that people would question the source of certain information. And that's why we think groups like the National Urban League, NAACP, to name two, the National Action Network, who are reputable organizations, we would encourage people to follow our voices on issues of public policy because the Russians created nine fake news sites, nine fake news sites, fake, phony, and use those news sites to spew the kind of messages that they spewed. Don't vote. All politicians are sellouts. Uh, yep. they, uh, they took the Colin Kaepernick situation and they tweeted seven times or posted seven times as many tweets as all Americans combined. And wow. they tweeted on both sides of the issue. This is the kind of diabolical confusion they were engaging in. And what troubles me about this is whether they were taking a rhythmic cadence, I'll use, from the president's comments after the Kaepernick incident. Right. After Kaepernick's protest. No, I mean, it, it goes to a point of something that you said, as we kind of think about the political environment, because some of this is because you know, Russia knows that we are vulnerable in this area, our tribalism, right. race, racism. And you've made a point of saying, it's a, this is a quote from you, it, it is essential to America's uh, American survival about coming together, having inclusion. This is an issue of morality, uh, an issue of historic, uh, historic positioning, an issue that touches every person, every institution, and we have to get it right. My question is this, given where we are right now uh, in the post-Obama world and the current present occupant of the White House, how far away do you think we are from achieving that? And what do we need to do to make sure we get that America that we seek? Well, I think, I think we need voices. I think we need voices and we need people. We need to send a very strong message that we can have public policy differences in this country. We can have differences about the direction of the country. But what we can't have is hate. What we can't have is uh, uh, an endless string of political aspersions. What we can't have is every foreign actor opining on American politics and public policy. We, 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 we are going to become a very different country if that is what American democracy becomes. The founding fathers inserted two explicit provisions in the Constitution to guard against foreign influence. Number one, they required that the president be a naturally born citizen or a naturalized citizen in the United States. That a foreigner, huh? natural born citizen of the United States, can't be a foreigner who just comes over here and changes their citizenship and then runs for president. The second thing they did is they put the emoluments clause in. And that was designed to prevent foreign countries from paying off the president to gain favor over public policy issues. And it very well was, I think, in, uh, uh, in the history of Europe in those days that that was a common tactic, right? To pay off 
right. foreign leads. So the, if you will, uh, uh, the founding fathers, so this is a theme that's been present since the founding of this country. Uh, and now it, there's a new dimension to it. The main reason why there's a new dimension to it has everything to do with the existence of social media and yeah. a resurgent Russia, yeah. a resurgent Russia with Vladimir Putin, who is determined to be a world power again. I, I once heard Michael Eric Dyson say this, that social media uh, amplifies pre-existing conditions of the, uh, uh, of, of the human nature, particularly biases and things like that. So I, I think you're absolutely correct. And look, social media is not a dog whistle. Social media is like a huge megaphone. It, it's good. I mean, Michael Eric Dyson, that, that's a great characterization. Uh, but it does it with force and power. No, I agree. And with self-selection from the standpoint that people only have to see what they want to see. Yep. That's true. You can also identify who you want to see the message. Yep. You have yep. control over that. So it allows you just to believe whatever you want to believe in your own mind. And so overcoming that is going to be a challenge. And you often talk about patriotism versus nationalism. As we get ready to conclude, we want to, I want to get to this point and ask, ask you a couple of questions, and then we'll be done. But what do you mean by patriotism versus nationalism? Well, nationalism, which I think is what we saw in Charlottesville and what is an undercurrent, is not patriotism. And so I use the De Gaulle quote. Nationalism is when hate of others is your driving animating uh, purpose and intent. A patriotism is when love of your own country is your purpose and your intent. And when I talk about patriotism, I'm not talking about a flag-waving patriotism. I'm talking about a 21st century version of patriotism where we believe in the values of America, the values of America as stated are justice and opportunity. Uh, that is essentially what this country says it stands for. And so patriotism is to say we are going to ensure our generation of Americans that this country lives up uh, to its values, that this country embraces its values. And this is not about hatred of others. So as, as, a, as a final point, a couple points, what, what do you think? I want to just switch to thinking about you a little bit here. Uh, you have a committee of three. Uh, they can be alive right now. Uh, they can be deceased. Who would you choose to be like your advisors and and why? Oh boy, I would need to think about that. <laughs> That's I mean, why I like, the question. I'd like to. I'd like to have Frederick Douglass. Okay. Uh, as advisors, wow. Two more. That's interesting. No, that's okay. Who, who else might I want to have as my advisors? Uh probably would pick my father. I figured that. Yeah. And the third advisor uh, would be someone who's now still with us. That'd be my mother. That'd be my advisors. Why? Because I, I trust them implicitly. And I just think I, I put Fred in there because I, uh, I think Fred, uh, what Fred accomplished in the 19th century is Absolutely remarkable. Okay. Final question here. Uh, a billboard that summarizes what you, what you stand for, your beliefs, what does it say? The Gumbo Coalition is alive and well. <laughs> why, so why? My, concept, my concept of the Gumbo Coalition 
was a concept of an America that's a multicultural democracy. Okay. An America that, uh, that, 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 that all people can participate in regardless of race, creed, color, religion. All right. That, that, that was really good. Sexual Pleasant. orientation, uh, you know, uh, all, all conditions, right? So that's been one of the things that's drove me throughout my career in, in terms of being an advocate, right? So it's, it's an objective, right? The Gumbo Coalition is an objective. Uh, and gumbo is a food that no matter what, you can always add ingredients to gumbo and make it better. It's not a static item. And man, that's America as, as it should be. It's a tension that America always has. Uh, I think it was uh, Deval Patrick who said, you know, one side of America is about fear and, and, and keeping people down. You know, another side is about hope. But only one of those areas are patriotic and it's about making sure we come together we fight and i want to just i want to thank you for your time eternal vigilance is the price of freedom as we hey, all appreciate say. you man stay in touch president mark morial the president of the urban league we want to thank you for your time look forward to look forward to seeing you in uh, indianapolis and look forward to working together with you over the course of the years god bless you god bless you too thank you my pleasure thank you so much well, I, I, we've triggered our tribal, we're at the tribal level of cooperation at this point. So that's always the most dangerous point in any democracy organization structure. And as we talked about, the, the, the tool of social media amplifies the pre-existing conditions of tribalism and figuring out how we use that to actually do something else. Instead, use the group dynamic to bring people together, work together and actually encourage uh, diversity of thought, diversity of opinion, divergent thoughts is I think the next chapter where we gotta figure out how to use social media. We know social media is great for a lot of reasons, but it's also has some sides that were, I think, unintended for the most part, but we, you know, we got to figure out how to how to get to the better part of our human nature in it. Well, but there's a flip side of everything, though. So as much good True. that can be done on social media, there can be bad. And when you do have a society that is is relatively free, you're going to have the bad with the good. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know that there's ways to systematically eliminate it. The, the, the biggest problem is that so much is controlled by the bad now, by the negative impulses. I think that's the key. That's the key. It's just too much. The balance is out of whack. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the balance yeah. is out of whack. Like it's fine because that is a free society. You're right. You you have to allow voices in, even crazy voices. The, but it, but right now it seems like the group dynamic, the crazy voices are the loudest, the most prevalent, and the ones leading the way. So that that's the issue. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I've been uh, I've been looking at this a lot lately, and it, it really to me comes down to I think that we have too much participation in our system from the partisans and not enough from the people who are just who are just living life and who aren't fully dedicated, like the super motivated people on either side of an issue are dominating the discourse to the extent that and, and then maybe others are being radicalized. But there are a lot of people who don't or who aren't don't have an allegiance to a particular party or a particular person or anything like that. When you look at the numbers in terms of who's consuming media or who's, who's uh, even, you know, following some of the more fringe people, they're still relatively small numbers compared to the total population of the nation. Um, but we need to hear more. We need, we need people to vote 
We need people to, to vote their conscience. Like I think some people don't vote either because they don't think it matters or because they don't think that the, that, that anybody perfectly represents their mindset, but the collective decision-making, but it's the collective decision-making. It's not anybody individual vote that matters. It's the collective decision-making. So when people who aren't, fanatical this or fanatical that opt out, then the only voices in the voting are the fanatical this and the fanatical that. Which is still a choice. You're, I mean, uh, opting out is giving power to others. To the fanatics. As, to, to the fanatics. Yeah. One. To the fanatics on either side. I mean, that's not, like, I, I it's there true. are people who, yeah, like, think about it like this. Um, right now, our system is basically where lo- the, the lawyers on either side of an issue, uh, you know, arguing about, you know, Somebody sues somebody. You got lawyers on one side, lawyers on the other side. The lawyers are the paid advocates. Their job is to advocate on behalf of their client. Well, basically now the lawyers are now the jurors too. Yeah. Because it, the lawyers then, and, and everybody knows what the lawyers are going to say. They're all going to vote for their client. And yep. so it's like, well, hold on. What about the people who don't, who haven't sided up with one side and says, I'm going to ride or die for this side, no matter what. Like those are the people we need to hear more from. And it's really, I don't, they don't need to get out and start professing, you know, this and that just, just participate in the process. But but they need to participate in as Mark, as, as Mark Morial pointed out, there is a reason why Russia decided to go after people that, uh, we're more likely not to be identified or go all the way with one party or another. Like even people that might vote Democratic, but oh, aren't, man. aren't all the way there. The goal was to make those people feel like they don't have power, like exactly. it doesn't make a difference. And that's what the focus is. And so what I think the answer is, and guess we're answering my own question, is we got to make people understand their own power. Yes. Because they do have yes. it. Yes. You're, well, I mean, you're, you're a labor attorney. I know you, uh, that's a big part of what you do is, is helping individuals understand the power. Cause again, it's not the individual that's Correct. the power. It is the collective that's the power. When individuals collectively bargain, then yeah. they become as powerful as capital that's been collectively put together yep. because that's what corporations are. You know, never forget corporations aren't natural persons. No, they they're are, not people despite the law, what they say. They are combinations they're not, they're not of money, money put together equals a corporation, a legal entity. And the only way to match that is with people put together yep. and into, into a collective. And so when you see that, and, and so, yeah, like that's fascinating though, you know, how the Russians targeted, you know, for example, African-American communities and tried to promote the thought that, Hey, nobody cares about you. You don't matter, but they promote this, not a, it wouldn't be, they wouldn't show it as a white person saying this, they'd show it as another black person Correct. Saying it, or, or saying, Hey, you know, we're not going to participate in this and to make people feel helpless and hopeless and to, to opt out as a way to empower Fanatics. And, and, cool. and, and yeah. again, it, it's, I say fanatics, not necessarily equal to crazy, but fanatics meaning just fans. We have people that are fans of this party or fans of this party or fans of the, of the president to the extent that they support the person or the party they're a fan of over the country. If something's yeah. good for the country, they don't care. If, if the country's law is this, they don't care if it's, if it's anti or if it's, if it's not something that is in the favor of, their, of the, whoever they're a fan of. Just like fans of a football team are not in favor of the rules if the rules are being applied against their team. You know, so it, it's, it's the similar uh, mindset where I'm just trying to win. Like, I no. don't care, yeah. you know, and then yeah. this is embodied in our politics now where, you know, Mitch McConnell is, is the, the head of the Senate. And he 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 explicitly is like he's saying, hey, I, I will only do things that are going to be good for my party. And that's it. And 
you know, it, it's shocking that you can say that out loud and make that your, 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 the way you're going about governing. You can if, if people aren't participating and the only people participating are the people that want to hear that. So it's that is the problem. People have to take back their own power. Eternal vigilance is the price of freedom. I'm Rob Richardson. I'm Amisha Cross. And I'm James Keyes. And that's what we're all about. See you next time on Disruption Now. 